If you watch very much television, you're, you're probably aware of the endless stream of commercials for prescription medications. Uh, you see a lot of these on the Hallmark channel. Don't ask me how I know that, but the, it runs a lot on Hallmark for whatever reason. Uh, amazing technological and medicinal advancements. You know, it's pretty amazing to consider all of these, these uh, medicines that treat specific illnesses and issues. But it's also a little scary because if you've seen these commercials, you know that about a third of the commercial is devoted to reading off all the side effects, right? And of course, they read them off quickly and in a very cheerful tone. But if you listen closely, it can be a little unsettling because in almost every case, there is the risk of serious illness or death which would be very unlikely, but still the possibility exists, which is why you can't just walk into Walgreens and pull one of these medicines off the shelves. Like, no, you've got to go through a doctor to get a prescription because you've got to deal with the potential risks. Is the cure, in my case, worth the side effects? That's a legitimate question that has to be answered. Now, we also have to answer the question, why do the drug companies list all these risks right there in the commercial. Is it out of the goodness of their heart, you think? No, they do it because the law requires them to. The FDA requires the side effects to be read out loud in the course of the advertisement. Otherwise, I'm sure these companies would not list all the risks because that's bad advertising. I mean, it's, it's almost impossible to sell something if the potential risk outweighs the benefit of the product. That's why advertisers work so hard to hide costs away from us or to bury them down deep in the fine print, right? Well, y'all, we're spending this summer talking about discipleship, what it means to trust and follow Jesus. And if I can just borrow the terms we just used, when we talk about the benefits of following Christ, oh my goodness, we really could go on all day. The immeasurably great benefits of knowing Christ. When we come to Jesus, y'all think about this, we receive eternal life, the forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God, rest for our souls. We receive a love beyond measure, a, a, a new heart, the very Spirit of God who now indwells us. We get divine meaning and purpose for life. We could go on all day. And yet at the same time, Jesus is very clear and upfront with us that there is a great cost in following him. And it's not a hidden cost. It's not something that the Bible buries deep down in, you know, the, the end notes or the, you know, the center margin of your Bible or somewhere toward the back where we're not like, likely to find it. No, Jesus lays out the cost over and over again in the gospels right there present alongside the offer of his grace. He doesn't hide it. In fact, he wants us to see it. He wants us to count it in his own language. We can't talk about discipleship without counting the cost. And y'all, this is a conversation we have to always have soberly because we see in the ministry of Jesus how the cost of following Him was, was too much for many people to stomach. A great many people in the, in the life and ministry of Jesus were driven away. They were turned away by the expression of the price of following him. And of course, it's no different today. It was true then and it's true now. But moreover, I want us to see today, right there aligned with this conversation of cost, that when Jesus speaks of this issue, he speaks of it as in the end a benefit as well. That the cost in the end is not a loss for us, but an eternal gain. See, when I use that word cost, 
We tend to view that word as pure subtraction. Jesus is talking here about something that I lose and never get back. But that's not how it turns out for those who love him. Even the cost turns out to be our gain. And Luke chapter 9 reveals this to us. And so I I want us to look today. This is some of the very hardest, most challenging words Jesus ever spoke, but so needful. And in the end, very wonderful if we're willing to see what he says here. This is Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 23. We're going to read this short paragraph together. Jesus is speaking now. And he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Jesus speaks right here of discipleship in ways that are fairly shocking, right? And part of what shocks our system is when we realize Jesus is not talking about some special advanced level of discipleship that we can decide to opt into if we're willing. This is not elite level Navy SEAL discipleship. He's speaking now to anyone who wishes to follow him. This is base level. This is the rule, not the exception for all who come after me. Jesus says you must deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. In the very next verse, he says... You must lose your life for my sake. And so, y'all, we should go ahead and get this out of the way. There's no massaging this to make it less abrasive. There's no diluting this to make it more palatable. Jesus says what He means, and He means what He says. And so we don't need to try to find a way around this or even make a softer landing for ourselves. We just need to seek by God's grace, to understand and apply it here. And so let's take some of these ideas in turn now. What does Jesus mean when he calls us to self-denial? Well, we should start with what this isn't. Self-denial does not mean that you and I are just worthless trash. It doesn't deny our value or dignity or even our identity. You know, there are religions out there that say, that your individual identity is ultimately a problem that needs to be solved, and the end result of your life is that you lose the sense of who you are individually, and you are kind of encompassed into the larger universe, the all-soul. That's the goal. You lose yourself entirely. But y'all, that's not what Christianity teaches. You will be uniquely you forever. You will be you forever. And that is a gift of God. That's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. And so self-denial cannot mean that you are worthless and that you lose yourself entirely. What it does mean, though, is that we are lost. We are defective, as it were, and we need to be redeemed. We do need a new identity. It's not a total loss of self. You remain you by God's grace. But the center of your life can no longer be you. It now must be Christ. 
We're no longer to be governed and ruled by self-interest. We no longer put ourselves on the throne, but Jesus is first. Y'all, one of the simplest, most powerful expressions of this came from John the Baptist. In John chapter 3, as John was kind of uh, fading into the background and the ministry of Jesus was rising to prominence, John made a statement so very clear and wonderful. John said, He, Jesus, must increase. I must decrease. John understood his role, that it had been played and fulfilled, and now the spotlight belonged to Christ. And we can all make that same affirmation. He must increase. I must decrease. Now that idea perhaps is simple enough on the surface, but I hope we recognize that in our lives, we have enormous hurdles and roadblocks that stand in the way. Self-denial is not something you and I just eat for breakfast and then move on. It's something that's incredibly difficult. It's something that that is entirely unnatural. And two things that continually come to mind as I prepare this message that serve as roadblocks for us that we can all, I I think, recognize. One is our culture in which we live, and the other is our own heart. Now, when we think about it, I hope we realize this. Our culture is more obsessed with self than any other culture there ever was. More specifically, we are obsessed with the idea of self-determination, self-expression. Everything about me should be exclusively up to me to decide. And no one is allowed to question it. No one is allowed to challenge me. Most notably, I'm sure you're aware, we've seen this explosion of self-determination in matters of sexuality and gender and personal identity. But it's everywhere. It's true across the board. It's true in every place that we inhabit. Our, y'all think about this. In the, in the place and time in which we live, the greatest virtue is self-expression. The greatest sin is self-denial. Self-denial is the worst thing you could possibly do. To take the impulses and desires in you and suppress them? No one can tell you to do that. You're supposed to explore them, to put them out for the world to see, and nobody can tell you any different. That's the world in which we live. That's the air that we breathe. And so I hope we understand this. This is not a problem that some people out yonder deal with. This is the air we breathe. It is profound how much we are probably shaped by this ideology, self-determination rather than self-denial. I mean, that's why I say it's true, not just of the culture, it's true of my own heart and yours. Y'all, I love me so much. I think about myself all the time. And so it's not at all natural or preferable for me to deny myself to build my life and my affections and my desires, my ambitions on anybody else. That's not natural for me, especially not to build them around Jesus. Which is why I think Jesus presses the issue here. When He calls us to the denial of self, He follows that up with something even more shocking. He calls us to the death of self because He knows the human heart. Anyone who wishes to come after Me, Jesus says, must deny himself and take up His cross daily, and follow me. Y'all, Jesus is inventing a phrase right there when He tells us, take up your cross. The disciples in that moment 
they would have understood the depth and the gravity of that command, of that image, in a way that, that we only know with, with a fair amount of sentimentality. We put the cross up in the middle of our worship service. We view the cross as a good thing, but the disciples would not have seen it that way. The cross was the Roman Empire's instrument of capital punishment. The cross was a tool of suffering and death for criminals. It was the worst fate that could possibly come upon a human being. And so what the disciples see in that moment when Jesus says, take up your cross, they see absolute pain and suffering and punishment and torture. But there's something they couldn't yet see because Jesus was still walking among them. They couldn't see that he himself was going to take up a cross of his own, that he's calling them to do something that they would witness with their own eyes as his body was broken and his blood was shed. His mission was to suffer and die for our sins by being nailed to one of those Roman crosses to which they feared so greatly. And so think about now what's happening here as Jesus gives this this very tight, narrow boundary, this gate to enter into when it comes to discipleship. Deny yourself and take up your cross. Self-denial looks like kids play compared to the other. But what does he really mean? When Jesus says, you must take up your cross, well, we have to understand that he's not speaking quite literally here because he calls us to bear our cross how often? Daily. And the disciples would have understood that if you carry a literal cross, that's a one-way ticket. That's not something you do daily. It's something you only do once and then you're dead. But here Jesus calls us to do it, to do it every day, continually. And so it can't be entirely literal, but that doesn't make it any less powerful for us. It shouldn't. What Jesus is saying here is that being his disciple means a daily, continuous, conscious death to yourself. And it helps us to consider, again, what he says right after that. He calls it losing your life for my sake. Y'all, what's happening here, I think, at the deepest level is this. Jesus is saying when you identify with Him, when you identify with Christ, when He becomes your greatest treasure and your highest love, there's a losing of yourself, of your life, that necessarily takes place. And in fact, it's something that has to be done continually as it pertains to our decision-making, a daily doing of something that is unnatural to us and obviously painful But when we identify with Christ, I think the message is clear, we're we're identifying not just with the good times and the glory and the sweetness of following Christ, we're also identifying with His cross, which means all the opposition, rejection, shame, suffering, and death that Jesus entered into is something that we in some sense now share and experience. It becomes ours as well. Jesus affirmed this in the book of John. He says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. You are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you because they identified with Christ. They were going to be subject to the same treatment that he received. And so should we. That's the the promise. Now, again, this doesn't literally mean that we're going to experience everything that Jesus did. It doesn't mean we're going to be killed for our faith necessarily, although potentially. 
See, this is what it means to carry a, call, a cross. It means there's a cost that we embrace in an ongoing sense because we love Jesus more than we love our own lives. We love Jesus even to the point of death, if necessary. And to the point of death in a daily sense that we actively choose and experience. And now, now here's where I get, I get into a problem constantly. I'm always trying to so spiritualize what Jesus says that I never see how it could actually be practically true of me. Okay, okay, but what does it really mean to carry my cross daily? And there is a sense, I think, in which Jesus leaves this vague for us so that the Spirit of God might lead each person individually into it in different times and in different places and situations across might look different. There's truth in that. But I want us to consider it maybe where it hits home or where it ought to hit home for us. John Piper wrote an article on this that was especially helpful for me. He talks about the things that a cross represents, which of course are terrible, that there is shame and opposition and, uh, and uh, suffering and death. Well, the opposite of those bad things are things that we naturally love. Things like approval and comfort and life. Right? And so when we speak of things like that, that we love, that we naturally pursue, what Piper says is, and it's very helpful, that if we treasure Christ more than those good things, more than approval and honor and comfort and even life itself, if you treasure Christ more than those things, then you will still gladly choose Him and follow Him even when those things are threatened or lost. See, so often we don't know what it is to carry our cross when things are going so well because it's hard to actualize. But when Christ is our greatest treasure, even though we might lose or have threatened those things that we naturally love, we lose them with almost a strange sense of gladness. Not because it's easy, but because our highest love remains intact. We lose our lives for His sake because we treasure Him more than life itself or anything that makes this life enjoyable at the most natural level. Does that make sense? We'll only know so often how much we really treasure Him when things go south, and He's the only thing we have left to cling to. But even then, if we lose our life for His sake, if we bear up a cross that treasures Him more than life itself, then we can lose life. We can lose the things we naturally treasure and still have the higher love intact. We have Christ. Now, still... <laughs> Okay, but what does it look like, Kyle? Luke actually records some micro uh, test cases here for us to put a little more skin on the bone, okay? We're not left to wonder. Look at the end of Luke chapter 9, this very same chapter. Three people, three test cases, where people appear ready to follow Jesus, but then Jesus in, uh, uh, kind of sets the cost out for them in a way that challenges their priorities. Look at this. This is Luke 9, verse 57. As they, Jesus and the disciples, were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And Jesus said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, Permit me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. 
Another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, we, there's a way of reading what we just read and seeing Jesus as being overly strict, overly demanding, and frankly, maybe even cruel here. Who doesn't let a man go to his dad's funeral? But two quick points I want us to consider as we look at a scripture like that. Y'all, for one, Jesus knows the heart. Every person Jesus ever encountered, he saw into that person's heart and soul. Jesus knows about us what no one else knows. He knows the hidden motivation. He knows the hidden sin and idolatry of every person's heart, including these people that he's interacting with here in Luke chapter 9. And so we, we have to trust here that when Jesus speaks with such sharpness, that he's actually telling each of these men the very thing they truly most need to hear. That he's not being unnecessarily cruel to them. He's not anti-family or anti-whatever. But he's telling these men what their heart most needs to hear because of the lack of um, singular priority that existed in their heart. They said they would follow Jesus. He's challenging them as to whether that intention is legit. And so secondly, this, this all points to the, the, the thing that Jesus has already said back earlier in this chapter about the denial of self and death to self. Y'all, the idea, the whole idea of Jesus being Savior and Lord means that He comes first by definition. By definition, Savior and Lord has no other category in which to fit. He can only fit in the highest place. There's no secondary or lesser place that Jesus will fit into your life. He just won't be secondary. He won't sit in the back seat. He won't allow you to stay on the throne while He serves you and acts as your butler, so to speak. And so, y'all, if we understand the nature of who Jesus is, then we can understand the sharpness of His responses to these three men. Especially, y'all, the latter two, the second guy and the third guy. Do you notice how both of those men say to Jesus, I will follow you, but first. But first. First. And for these men, the first thing, the higher priority was something other than Jesus. To which the Lord says, no. Now the point here is this. If these men really understood who Jesus is, and if they really treasured Him as He deserves, then there would be no other firsts for them. Y'all, we're dealing with the Lord of the universe, the Savior of the world, he will not be your personal assistant. Jesus will not wait around in the background until I fulfill all of my other aspirations and ambitions for life first, and then I'll follow Him. It just doesn't work that way. That betrays a heart that does not treasure Him above everything else. He will not take second place. And it's a fool's errand to try and make Him fit into any lesser category. He is Savior and Lord, you can't take one without the other. And y'all, I hope it's easy to see at this point 
why so many people in the life of Jesus, in his ministry, in the Gospels, so many people turned tail and left when the cost was presented to them. The call of Christ was such that they just couldn't stomach the cost. And I say this, no, y'all, nobody, nobody would have an issue with Christ. Nobody, both, both either then or now. Nobody would have a problem with Jesus if he said, hey, listen, just fit me in the best you see fit. Just put me wherever you want me, and I'll do for you what you need. Everybody would like that version of Jesus because he would function on our terms. But that's not how we operate. That's not how he stands as Savior and Lord. Jesus says, following him is going to cost you your life as you know it. It means denial of self. It means a cross. It means you die to yourself. The Apostle Paul said it like this, one of my very favorite scriptures from Philippians chapter 3. Paul says, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them but rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and may be found in him. All things are loss in Paul's mind compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ. He comes first. And there was a gladness, a gain that accompanied that priority. Paul considered the loss to be rubbish. It wasn't a loss at all in his mind. And so, y'all, the truth is we have to come to a point of decision. And all of us do this. In fact, some of us, I mean, we, we recognize that Jesus was being literal here. Daily, daily, we come to this decision. Is the cure worth the side effects? Are the benefits of following Jesus worth this outrageous cost? That question is not as easy to answer as we might wish it were. Because it pierces us to the very heart, to the very self, the self that I love and I don't want to lose. But y'all, I want to I turn a corner here with us as we close. Even those questions, which may be helpful, are still wrong, or at least incomplete. The person who truly trusts and follows Jesus Christ, I made mention of this earlier. Y'all, even the cost in the end is our benefit. Even the cost in the end is our benefit. Jesus says so in verse 24. Look back at verse 24 again. Jesus says, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it or find it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Y'all, that, what we just read, this is one of the most powerful spiritual truths there is. If you live for yourself, Jesus says, in the end, you forfeit yourself. To live for yourself is ultimately to lose yourself. There is zero profit to the person who lives for profit. Or we could say it like this, we only lose in the end what we withhold from Jesus. You only lose what you withhold from God. And see, that's, that's backward in terms of how we naturally think because we look around what Jesus says. There's a whole world to gain, it would seem. A whole world out there that exists for me, that can be apprehended, that's, that's a place for my ambitions and achievements and, and my self-determination uh, and expression, right? A whole world to gain. 
But the scripture says the whole world is passing away. And the only thing left in the end will be you and me and all of our gains will be lost. All of our gains, apart from Jesus, will come to nothing. On the contrary, Jesus says, whoever loses his life for my sake, he will save it. Whoever loses his life now for the sake of Christ will find life. That's eternal life, eternal gain, fullness of joy, pleasures forever. And so, y'all, I want us to be very careful that when we frame the question here today that we're not asking the wrong question here. It's a natural thing, but it's entirely wrong for any of us to come to Jesus and say, so how much is this going to cost me? As if Jesus were an auto mechanic. Before I commit to follow Jesus, I want to know what the damage is going to be. How much is this going to set me back? Now, I want to tell you this. If that's, if that's the question we're asking, you will never follow him. Mark my words, you'll never follow him because you're not going to get the answer you want. If we say, how much is this going to cost me? What does Jesus say? Well, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. In other words, it costs everything. And no one with a scarcity mindset, no one with a cost-benefit mindset is going to pay everything is going to lose everything. And so the question can't be, what's this going to cost? The question instead is, how much do you trust Him? Do you really trust Jesus Christ that He is Lord of the universe and Savior of the world? Because if you do, if you trust Him, then you will understand what it cost Him to save you. And that's what makes all the difference. The question ultimately is not, what's it going to cost me to follow Jesus, but what has it cost Him to save me that I might follow Him? Y'all, we didn't read this earlier, but right here in chapter 9, immediately before this call to discipleship, Jesus predicts His own death and resurrection. It's right before verse 23 where we started. In verse 22, Jesus says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and be raised up on the third day. Now, before Jesus calls you to carry your cross, He came to carry His. Especially on a day like this, when we're talking about the command to follow Him, we're talking about decisions that require great effort and strain and difficulty and pain. We have to be very clear on how this works. Your effort will never produce what Jesus is talking about here. Because Jesus never says, you, you prove me wrong, go find it if you can. Jesus never says, commit your life to me and I'll die for you. Prove your love for me, then I'll die for you. No, in that case, your commitment would be the cause. Your commitment would be the cause of your salvation. When Jesus is saying the opposite here, our commitment to Jesus is the effect not the cause. It's the outcome. You know, the truth of the gospel right here is what changes this whole conversation for us. See, it wouldn't shock us if God were to look down on humanity with all our problems and sins and darkness and for God to say, guys, get your act together, deny yourselves, commit yourselves to me, and then we'll see. 
then I'll reassess things at a later time. You know, God's well within his rights and authority to do that, to tell us to get straightened out, and then maybe he'll bless us. But y'all, the gospel tells us something different. The gospel is the good news that the Son of God willingly chose to deny himself and take up his cross for us. Jesus denied himself and took up his own cross. Before Jesus tells you to lose your life for his sake, you must recognize that he has given his life for yours. And so salvation for us does not come by our commitment to follow him as if our commitment was enough. Salvation only comes by a prior commitment that God made, that he would come and rescue us. Y'all, when we realize this, that Jesus Christ carried his own cross for the forgiveness of our sins, that he took up his own cross, that he lost his own life for our sake, when we recognize that, it's, that His free grace, which He has lavished on us, is all that is necessary to save us and give us life, we would never ever think to ask, okay, but how much is this going to cost me? That question should never enter our minds if we understand the grace of the gospel. Now, we ask a new question, a different question, and we ask it with astonishment. How much has it cost him to give me eternal life? And the answer is everything. It cost him everything. And y'all, it was a price he gladly paid. And so this is the ultimate question for us as we close. It's, it's not a question of cost. It's a question of trust. Do I trust Jesus that when he calls me to die to myself, He's actually calling me into a more abundant life than I could ever imagine. Do I trust Jesus that gaining Him, even when it means suffering, and it does, but gaining Him is infinitely better than if I were to gain the whole world without Him? The Apostle Paul wrote this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Listen to how wonderfully he summarizes this for us. He, Jesus, died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. This is what Jesus is calling us to. Friends, if, if Jesus really did die for us and then he rose again on our behalf, then not only does He deserve your whole life, but you can trust Him with your life. You can trust Jesus right here and now that there's nothing you could ever lose in following Him that could possibly compare with the surpassing value of knowing Him as your Lord and your Savior. In the end, we lose nothing. To lose our life for His sake is to find it. If we trust Him that He carried His own cross for us, then may we trust Him 
with the life that we now live today, to walk in his grace no matter the cost. Let's pray. Father, I, I pray this morning, I, I certainly pray speaking for myself and, and perhaps for all of us, I hope, that, Lord, I get very uncomfortable with these kinds of Scriptures. I love to think about the benefits, and, Lord, I shudder to think of the cost. I don't, I don't like the thought of losing anything. I don't like, Lord, in my, in my own flesh, I just, I, I like my priorities and my ambitions. Um, I like myself. And Lord, I'm a, I'm a product of my culture in many ways. I know it. And so, Father, I pray this morning that, that for me, for all of us, that we come to a very clear point of, of reckoning here. That, Lord, we would see um, reality as Jesus defines it. That we, I could gain the entire world, I could get everything I ever wanted and end up with nothing. End up only losing in the end the very thing that matters most. Myself. My soul. Which belongs to you, Lord. And which you have purchased on the cross of your son. And so, Father, I, I pray, Lord, this morning for all of us that, Lord, we, there would be a, a rearranging, a redeeming of how we see the world, how we see ourselves, Lord, our, our affections, our heart this morning. That this idea of cost, this, this self-denial, this cross-bearing, Lord, if we're just, if we're just, just repelled by this, Father, that you would show us what is true and good and glorious. That this is what Jesus has done for us to deny himself, to pour himself out, to take up his own cross, to lose his life for our sake so that we might have life Real life, the life that counts, the life that is never ending, the life that reconciles us to you. And that, Lord, there's nothing Jesus would ever ask of us or take from us that we would not receive infinitely more, gloriously more, both in this life and in the life to come, because he is Savior and Lord. I pray, Lord, help us to, help us to rethink all of this so that we would not fear these words, but embrace them. That losing our life for Christ's sake would be something that we, we are overjoyed to do. Because we know the surpassing value of coming to Him in faith and receiving life in His name. Father, I, I pray that we recognize how very truly unnatural and difficult this is. This has to be Your work in our hearts. And so we ask for this, Lord, that you would come in, Lord, to these dark places that I just hold on so tightly to the love of myself. And Lord, root this out and, and bring, Lord, a foundation instead of love for Christ, of trusting him, 
trusting Him. That, Lord, there is only, in the end, gain if I will love Him and give my life for Him. Father, this is a, uh, a word that I pray You will help us to apply daily. And where we are confused as to what it looks like, then Lord, help us by Your Spirit. Show us what this is. Help us one another, Lord, as Your church, to understand this better and walk it out. So, Lord, that we might be your disciples who follow you with everything we have. And we ask it in Christ's awesome name. Amen.